we're going to take off in just a second. Glenn, I'm going to ask you if you would to begin us with a prayer, if you don't mind. Just ask the Lord to be with us, the Spirit to lead our class. And we're going to, any, anything anybody wants to ask or interject, including Paul, who is supposed to be just the guy, but he's a New Testament student here at Pepperdine. So we're going to include anybody in the discussion, but let's pray. Lord, we thank you for allowing us to come into your presence. We thank you, God, for your servant, for Phil. We ask, Father, your blessings, uh, all the blessings that you have stored up for us at this moment, for us to receive by way of guidance, wisdom, questions that are both asked as well as answered. And Lord, we pray that in our time together um, that we will be both uh, challenged as well as empowered. And this is our prayer in Jesus. So you guys are from California, Glenn's from Central Texas, and uh, uh, I have a connection to Hillsboro, uh, and uh, my mom got an overdue uh, notice for paying property taxes in Hillsboro. My grandmother and grandfather are buried in the cemetery. A White Rock Cemetery, just outside Hillsboro. Really? So, anyway, small world. Wow. Life, life gets connected. Well, let me tell you a little bit of what this is, but I forgot to do this yesterday, so I'm going to do this for the uh, folks that are listening to this. Um, there's a link to both pieces of the presentation, and this is a resource for folks to be able to use any way they want to in their church or their small group. Uh, or even a sermon series that integrates both New Testament stories and the Old Testament stories that are connected thematically. And that link is bit.ly slash pbl18b-pw. So bit.ly, bit.ly slash pbl18b-pw. Yesterday's is exactly the same. You just ch changed the B to an A. So now I got that done, and Paul doesn't have to remind me. Let me tell you a little bit about where we're coming from, and I didn't think I'd go over all this, but since we've got uh, new folks today, uh, we assume that Jewish people in the Bible have an orientation towards, especially outsiders, which would be Gentiles, less than, Amharitz is the, the technical term for normal people. We call them the pawns in the process of political life. Uh, the publican that, that Jesus pointed to, have mercy on me, a sinner. Uh, the technical Jewish term is people of the land. It just means they're, we'd call them hicks or bumpkins, something like that. And that would be the point of view from the social elites, which would be the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the ruling council, those folks. And then women. And our viewpoint of what Judaism teaches is often through our negative feelings towards the Pharisees. And so it skews uh, what we think and believe. And yet, all throughout the Old Testament, the kind of people that Jesus attracted to him were people that God reached out to. And uh, uh, I love the question that's been posed by, by a number of people, but I think it's important for us to ask, why are the people that Jesus attracted in his day uh, repelled by the church today? I think that's an, a crucial and important question. And when we begin to look at these Old Testament characters and connect them to New Testament people, then all of a sudden we realize God never wanted that. God always had a heart for folks that were vulnerable, that were outsiders, that were not the inside dominant culture, but were people that had a heart to find him. And so what we're going to look at today are some of those. Yesterday, uh, I showed a a format where you look at the characters in two different sections. 
One section is God's surprising choices. The other is uh, love at the margins or God's love for the marginals. And we'll present the second of those. But there is a way to do it in three pieces that emphasizes uh, some of the things that women did because we're largely ignorant of that. And so when we approach what do what should women be able to do in the church today, we almost completely ignore what they did in the life of the Old Testament people of God and in the early church. And so our exegesis, in my mind, should, should begin with what did they do so that we understand to hear the directions on, on uh, what's taught. So this is the three-part series, uh, Love for the Marginal, Section 2, and the final one is Out of the Shadows, and it focuses on some women that play very prominent roles. We looked at one of them yesterday, Hulda, this incredible prophetess, uh, which is almost, uh, uh, that's like saying deaconess. There's no such thing as a deaconess. The, she's a deacon. It's a servant. It's the same word. And so these are women that are prophets. So I'll just, you guys know how to get to this through the bit.ly link, and you can, you can trace some of that. I want to just kind of fill in a little bit of what in the world are we talking about Old Testament op-ed. Op-ed is the, the, usually the editorial piece that's different than the main editorial in the paper. It's on the opposite side. And it's not the dominant view, but it's the view that, that is courageous enough to say, now wait a minute, maybe this isn't right. Maybe we need to look at this a different way. And what we're going to look at is people and stories and teachings in the Old Testament that ran otherwise to the dominant culture. And what we see in these people is they display the nature of God, his faithfulness, his faithful love that's revealed in righteous character and gracious compassion. Uh, the, the theme is the song that maybe you heard when you were young. I don't know if y'all's parents ever uh, sang to you when you were little or not, but I gave an example yesterday. I'll give a different one today. But a song has the power to unlock memories. We sang this song one of the nights down at the the field house and uh, this song my dad died when I was 55 I've, when he was 51 and I was 25 and uh, this was his favorite song so uh, a number of years ago a good friend of mine was sitting next to me his name is Ron and uh, we're the same age we were really close I, we couldn't afford honeymoons when we first got married because we were graduate Bible students. And so we saved up and we eventually did uh, a honeymoon uh, in the same place at the same time. And it was really sweet. And when we had moved back to Fort Worth recently, we were going to do life together as couples and friends, close friends for all these years. Well, about 10 years after my dad's death, Ron was sitting next to me at the ACU version of the lectures, and uh, we sang that song, and I couldn't sing the third verse, this, especially this part of it, because it's my dad's favorite song, and I looked over at him, and tears were just streaming down his cheeks. And he said, I haven't been able to sing this song since your dad's funeral. Well, uh, Ron, credible man of God, counselor, triathlon, and he's competed in many triathlons, and on a Saturday night, he had a cerebral hemorrhage. Uh, I flew home early right after church uh, in, in Newark, Delaware, got there in time to see him a little bit. Next morning, he was gone. And I did part of his funeral, and we sang this song again. So this song means a lot to me because it's my pushback against the, the reality of lost relationship and grief. And so this song is more than just a song. You with me? It's relationship. It's, it's hope beyond death. It's uh, reunion. Well, there are stories in the New Testament that we love because they're so rich and deep. But we know 
there, there's something about them that we've heard or seen or felt before. And most of us, if we were blessed, uh, we got to learn a bunch of Bible stories when we were little kids. Uh, and some of those stories stuck back in our subconscious. And we do, we do emotively what we're going to try to do today intellectually and go back and reclaim those Old Testament stories and understand God's the same God. He's had the same heart. He's wanted the same thing. And so we've been prepared for Jesus' love, and today we're focused on love at the margins, and that means people that are marginalized by culture and his love for them, but how God demonstrated that a long time ago in the Old Testament, and how he cared for people and how he wanted for them. Uh, Deuteronomy is the book out of where uh, the prophets uh, lived their ministries and it's also a key place where a lot of teaching of Jesus emerges from. He, he dialogues with uh, the, the Psalms. We, Paul and I were talking about uh, how, how Matthew and Luke does the same thing, uh, use the Psalms to, to tell us who Jesus is in the language that they used. The Psalms were their songbook. And Jesus lived out of the Psalms. You remember Psalm 22 is, is what he pointed to when he was on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then there's a lot of the things that happen on the cross that we see in Psalm 22. Uh, Deuteronomy is another place. And this is, this is a theme that runs through Deuteronomy. Yahweh defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow, and he loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. So if we claim to be people of God, and this runs all the way through the Bible, and James, the half-brother of Jesus, picks it up in, in his book, then we've got to have this heart. And then here's one very practical law that was instated to help them live that out. When you are harvesting in your field and you overlook a sheaf, do not go back and get it. In other words, when you glean, when you harvest stuff, if it falls on the ground, you can't pick it up again. And uh, leave it for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. So this was a way of providing for the poor. And this becomes a key theme and some of the stories we're going to look at. There's, there's a couple of things that, uh, that we'll point to, and, and I wrote them on the board. I don't know if you can read them, but you know the corners and fallen gleanings you're not to harvest. That's for the widow, the fatherless, and the foreigner. Uh, the, uh, the theme of a kinsman redeemer, have y'all ever heard of that? You know what the kinsman redeemer is? That's a technical term there's a principle called Levirate Law. They didn't have Social Security. Uh, and so if a woman became a widow and didn't have a child, she was really disconnected from family. She left her family of origin to be part of his family, but she had no tie to the family. And so she was either going to be a prostitute or a beggar or in humiliation go back to the family that she was born into. And so the kinsman redeemer law is if, if a, a man has a son and that son dies leaving his wife a widow without children, then either the father or the son, the next son, has to marry her. And if there's not a son, then it has to be the closest male relative and give her a child. And that child then becomes uh, the heir that, that his daddy would have been if he had been born originally to the original father. Okay, so think this through. In a family, the, the first son got the bulk of the inheritance. But if that guy dies and the younger brother marries his wife, the heir that receives the property is not the younger brother but it's his son by his brother's wife. Does that make sense? And it was God's way of making sure that widows were not left destitute. 
It was a way for fight to provide for them. And so we get that theme, and that's the theme that runs behind the whole Ruth story, these two stories, uh, the corner and the fallen gleanings and the kinsman redeemer and God's love for the widow and the foreigner, because Ruth's all of those things. Uh, and when you start talking about where does this stuff come from, it's rooted in the nature of who God is. He's the God of Hesed, the God of uh, faithful love. Uh, and then God demonstrates who he is through his righteous character and his gracious compassion. So when you get the Ten Commandments, we've often said the Ten Commandments reflect love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and it's the first four because they're the God-directed ones. And the last six are directed to loving our neighbor as ourselves. The problem with that is we have a distorted view of the Sabbath. Because the Sabbath is not just God-directed, but it's other-directed. God's people did something that no other culture did at the time. Uh, They could not work their, their slaves or their servants are their animals on the Sabbath. The Sabbath rest was a rest for everyone. So it wasn't a time for them to chill out, get in their recliner and watch uh, Saturday football in, in Israel and make everybody else do the work for them. It meant that everybody rested. It meant the poor, the foreigner, the slut, every rung of culture got to bathe in this rest that God provided. And uh, it's all part of who God is. God wants us to know that we cannot be right with him and neglect the needs of the widow, the the fatherless, or the foreigner among us. And, And if we do that, then we're showing we really don't understand who God is. Uh, Jesus picks up on this thing. One of the coolest passages, he goes to his home synagogue and, uh, you know, I have all this in my mind exactly how it looks. looks uh, and no video has ever done it justice. But, you know, the, they take this, they give him the scroll. He goes to read the scroll. He finds the place. We would call it Isaiah 61. And he, he reads this passage. And Jesus went to Nazareth where he'd been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went to the synagogue, as was his custom, And he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. So he chose this passage. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, and recovery of sight for the blind and to assess and to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. It's jubilee. It's the great celebration of God's grace. Then he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant, sat down, and the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began to say to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now, Matthew's way of saying it uh, is found in, in Matthew 5 right after the the Beatitudes. And he says, uh, the Son of Man did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, to complete it. And he said, not one jot, not one tittle will will disappear from the law. In fact, you're to keep it, but what we're to do is we're to keep it like he did. Jesus is the embodiment, the fulfillment of that law. And so we shouldn't be surprised when these themes emerge and we see them in New Testament stories. So let's take a minute and just, there's several of us in the room. If I, if I were to ask you what your favorite story from the, the, this, the life of Jesus would be. Paul, you got one? Um, You've got about six or yeah. 10. But um, I, I, one, of the, one of the ones I really loved is the, the walking on the water story. Uh-huh. Um, just the, uh, I think especially Matthew's telling me that with, with Peter, just kind of that, that, that moment of being out in the middle of the waves, having no idea what's going on, and seeing Jesus 
like walking, like just doing something that's like impossible, and, mm -hmm. your, and the reaction is, oh my gosh, like there's there's like a ghost or something that's why they're trying to like gonna come and get us. Yeah. And then and then Jesus kind of reveals himself, and it's, it's just like that moment of like like all oh, like what? So I love that story. Okay, and and it's so full of mystery, uh, but uh, you know. Uh, Sailors especially have all sorts of myths and fears about being on open waters, and so, and, and it's a primal fear. All, once we are removed from the waters of birth, all of us have a primal fear of falling or drowning, of choking. And so this ties into this deep thing, and, and then Peter defies all odds. And then he realizes, I'm defying all odds, and he sinks. <laughs> okay, so that's a great story. All right, Glenn, you got one? Uh, the Blind Man in John 9. Okay. It's my favorite. He, he gives me and every one of us permission to say, I don't know, but I do know this. Yeah. And uh, I don't know who he is exactly, but I, I, I know that I was blind, and now I can see. As hard as I've ever tried to imagine what being born blind would be like, you know, we close our eyes and we can still see some kind of a filtering mm -hmm. of light. And to never have experienced that and then be able to see, because prior to that, Jesus makes the statement, I am the light of the world. Yeah. And uh, just on so many levels, I just so appreciate that. And, and one of the things we don't appreciate about those miracles is. The miracle is twofold. You restore the sight, mm -hmm. but but you also rewire the brain at the same time. Because even today, people who have had some form of blindness and then can see, it takes them a while to learn to decode what they're seeing. Yeah. So, yeah, okay, so that's cool. You guys have a favorite? Yeah, um... When Jesus is being questioned by the Pharisees and they give him the trick question, uh -huh. um, should we pay our taxes to Caesar? Yeah, yeah. And Jesus responds very witfully, you know, give what is to Caesar's to Caesar, give what is yeah. mine to me. And um, I find myself um, being faced with these trick questions a lot, you know, these difficult things, you know, should if I answer it this way, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm wrong, and if I answer it this way, I'm wrong. So um, I'm, in a, I'm in a pickle of a situation, and... I know that, like, in this situation, this doesn't answer a lot of the questions, but um, at least Jesus is in the same situation as me, and I, at least I can relate to that in some yeah. way. And it shows that he has a sense of humor and is pretty clever. Yeah. <laughs> you know, okay, dudes, come on. Whose image are you looking at? Well, let's see. Well, give me him. Yeah, so you have one? Uh, I like the one where after Jesus is crucified, the disciples, like, go out and they, like, go start fishing and stuff. And then, like, they're thinking all hope is lost. And then when Jesus comes and tells them to put the cat, their nets on the other side of the boat, they catch a bunch of fish. And then Peter realizes that it's Jesus. And he, like, runs out of the boat to go greet him. Yeah. It's like a sign that there's always still hope. And he has to put his clothes on, too. Right? You, you remember that part? Yes. Because he's, he's, he's down to his whitey tidies, you know, fishing. And then he's, it's the Lord. I think John says that, and he throws on his cloaks and moves to shore. And, of course, he leaves everybody else to do But it's a cool story. It's a cool story. Well, this is, this is my favorite all time, and it's tied to some things because of my experience with people with leprosy and some, some other things. So this one's a deeply moving one for me. Uh, and uh, when you understand the leper, well, whatever the skin disease was, the fear was it was what we would call Hansen's disease, this thing that that allows your nerves to be destroyed and then you begin to self-destruct by damaging yourself because you can't, you, you have no, if, if you rubbed a deep blister and it began to bleed, you wouldn't know because you can't feel it unless you saw it. And, you know, I've been in situations where a guy that had scabs on the ends of all of these, but he had no fingers, stuck his hand in the car wanting this and then I've I've been in a situation in in Thailand where you're not and this was 35 years ago you're not supposed to touch women in public and had a I talked about this story and we finished and, and had a 
Come on in, brother. Thank you so much. And and we had a we had a I had a lady come up to me and so she showed me where she had lost the digits on her fingers and I didn't know what to do and I couldn't speak Thai. And b b before I knew what I was doing, I kissed her hands. And then she hugged me, which was, they never did in those days, as she initiated. And then I was with teenagers and college students and here these kids kissing people that had lost their ear and lost this because in, despite all the, the sweet things that Hollywood has portrayed about Buddhism at a very basic level, if that happens to you, it's your fault. Bad karma is your fault. Mm, yeah. And so you're ostracized. And so these people live in this little enclave. And it, well, this story is Jesus reaches out and technically breaks the law right. of Moses. And he touches this leper. And he doesn't heal him with his touch. He heals him with his command. But he touched him first in his uncleanness and identified with him. So that's such a powerful moving story. And uh, one of the presenters here, uh, Dr. Beck from ACU, has got a couple of things that he's written about the movement from an Old Testament concept of holiness is corrupted by touching what is profane to Jesus flipping, what he calls it, flipping the polarity. And we have the power to take holiness and clean what is impure. In other words, we have redemptive power. We don't talk about it much, but we have the power to forgive. Uh, and and what, we, what two or three of us agree to forgive on earth, God's going to forgive in heaven. So it's this redemptive power. Well, you come into a story like Ishmael. You remember Ishmael, uh, uh, Abraham and, and, and Sarah, at this point, Abram and Sarah, uh, Sarai, uh, have been given this promise. And they're old as dirt. And the promise hadn't been fulfilled. And so they do what we all try to do. They're going to fix it for God. They're going to take it on themselves. And, and it seemed like a good idea, but then Sarai's handmaid, Hagar, has this child. And Abram does what a good daddy's going to do. He's going to love that child. And she goes, this is not such a good idea. And then she hated Hagar and drove him out. And when, when uh, they drove out Hagar... She was left all alone, and the story is very powerful. I mean, she thought the baby was going to die, she was going to die, they were going to die of thirst, die of hunger, and God provides for them. But this theme is a theme that is so powerful. Children can be caught in family feuds and unfairness, and God calls us to love them, and for them, because he loves them, to live for him. Well said. And, and the whole theme of Romans that we heard last night, wasn't that last night we did yeah. Romans? Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, is really trying to get the two sons of Abraham back in the same family. You know, this parting of the Gentiles and the parting of the, the, the son of promise. And, the, and, and God, all through the Old Testament, keeps talking about, I want to bring these folks together. That's why Matthew... You know, he finishes with a great commission to go to all the nations, but he also begins with the genealogy, with foreigners in Jesus' genealogy, and then the Magi, these Persians that come to welcome him, because Matthew says, God has always wanted us together. So, what's interesting is what's said about Ishmael is said in another powerful story in the Old Testament. Let's see if you can pick up on it. Uh, you are to name him Ishmael, which means God hears. For the Lord has heard your cry of distress. And when they're cast out of the family, they cry out, and God hears them and sends an angel to care for them. Does that language sound familiar at all? You remember Moses at the burning bush? Oh. I have seen your travails. I have heard your cries. Mm -hmm. And I have come down to save you. Well, Actually, Moses, I'm sending you. And that's how I'll save them. But 
what's said to Israel and is practiced in that 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 Passover deliverance, the Seder meal every year, what's said there was said of Ishmael. So every time a true Israelite heard this story, they would be reminded God doesn't just love us this way. He loves other people this way. And it was kind of this way of saying God really cares for those that we see as unclean, unworthy. And uh, we have the power to reverse the polarity on their being outsiders by leading them to Yahweh, lead them to come to know the true God. Uh, and so that's, that's Matthew's theme uh, because it's Jesus' theme. Okay, let's go to another one. This is a f- favorite story for a lot of people, the John 8 story of the woman caught in adultery. And we're, to be honest, we're not actually sure where it goes in the, in the, in the Bible. Uh, it has a more Lucan uh, vocabulary and style in some documents put it in Luke. Right. But what we know is this has a ring of authenticity. This right. is the Jesus we know. And uh, this, this woman is used as a sermon illustration by the Pharisees. In other words, it's exploitation of this woman. Where's the dude? Why isn't he here? He's supposed to be in the same hot water, all this. So she is basically being exploited, and and Jesus intervenes. Well, there's a story in the Old Testament that is even more powerful, I think, than the woman caught in adultery. Hmm. It's Tamar. Do you all know that story? Mm -hmm. Tamar, the daughter-in-law of Judah. Now, this is one of those stories that I've never preached on because it, it's, it's kind of, uh, it's above PG-13. Right. <laughs> um, but it goes back to this principle of kinsman redeemer. And Judah's first son marries Tamar. Tamar is in the lineage of Jesus, but she's not a Jew. She's a Canaanite. And so, uh, uh, Judah's son marries Tamar, but Judah's son was evil. And it said God took him. So she's a widow. So then Judah gives him the secondborn son. And uh, the secondborn son knows that if he gets her pregnant and she has a boy, that boy is going to be the primary heir and not him. So when they get ready, when they make love when it comes time to deliver the genetic material to her he pulls himself out and will not impregnate her and so God says okay dude this is not my plan I'm taking you too so here's Judah he's lost two sons that's married Tamar and he won't give his third son to be her husband despite the law of God well, there's another option. He could marry her. He could marry her. But he doesn't want to do that either. So uh, when Judah's wife dies, Tamar knows he's coming to her village, and she dresses up like a prostitute. Right. And he goes, that's a pretty good-looking woman. Uh, yeah. My wife's gone. So he has sexual relationship with her. And she takes uh, some of his garment and his staff, his walking staff, as a pledge because he doesn't have any money to pay her. Well, we get down the road about seven months and she's pregnant. And he is furious. And she's pregnant with twins, so she, she's really pregnant, you know. And, and he sees her and he just goes ballistic. You've been unfaithful to our family. You've been immoral. You, you're oh, yeah. adulterous. We're going to put you to death. And so it gets to the point where they're about ready to do that. And she goes, oh, the, the father of my child, she doesn't know she's having twins yet. The father of my child is the owner of these. And he looks at him and he goes, you're more righteous than I am. Right. You're more righteous than I am. And... 
Uh, so she ends up having twins, and she's in the lineage of, of David. But the, the principle of Leviric marriage, but Tamar was not asking of anything that was sexually inappropriate. She was asking for the protection as a poor widow under the law, both the Canaanite law and the Jewish law. And uh, so without legal power, Tamar comes up with a way to get the right to the family name in the line of Israel. And God includes her in the genealogy of King David and Jesus. I think when we put together this story and the fact that Jesus' mother was considered a whore, Mary was considered a whore by our contemporaries. We know because of what they call Jesus. You're the son of Mary, which was saying, Joseph ain't really your daddy. Uh, and, and we put it with the story of the woman caught in adultery. We can understand why Jesus was so powerfully in tune with protecting this, this, this woman that was caught in adultery, but doing it in a way that was redemptive, not dismissing her sin, but giving her a redemptive option. So to me, learning this theme that God has always wanted to care for the widow, the fatherless, and uh, the foreigner. Okay, so, whoa, something got stuck there. Let's see if let's see if we can get back to where we were. You get a preview of all our coming attractions. So, of course, the next person that's logical to consider is going to be Rahab and uh, the woman of the well, woman at the well. Uh, this beautiful story in in, in John four. Uh, uh, the woman at the well and the way Jesus reacts to her. And uh, uh, you know, uh, we were we were talking a little earlier about sometimes uh, we don't know exactly what to believe, but we do believe this. And Glenn, you were emphasizing the story in John nine. Uh, uh, I, I don't know everything, but I know this: I was blind, but now I see. Uh, uh, Max Licato is just freshly back from five years of mission work with Dinalyn in Brazil. And we're, we have been in a group together that's an accountability group for years. And, and so uh, he's, he's kind of given his testimony talking about what his struggles are. What's, and, and he said, brothers, after being in Brazil and seeing some of the things I've seen, I'll just tell you, I don't know a lot. But this is what I do know, that Jesus died for my sins and God adopted me by grace and Jesus was raised from the dead and I've got life forever with him. <laughs> well, that's, a, that's enough to hang on. Well, I, I read a little thing uh, that Max did after I had just preached on the woman at the well. And one of my hero preachers used the language. Uh, yeah, the husband you have now is the, the the guy that you're shacked up with now is not your own husband. You've had five husbands. The guy you're shacked up with, and I had a dad that had two girls, and he was furious that I used that language in the sermon. Mm -hmm. And I said, "Okay, I'm gonna." Go, I said, "Bob, I'll go home and I'll pray about this, and I'll look at this." And I came back the next week and. And I, and I apologized to him. And I said, all right, I'm going to apologize. Now, it's not the apology exactly that you want. I don't apologize for using that language. But I do apologize for using that language with that woman. This woman is a victim. She couldn't divorce any man. Uh, and being whether it's through, through divorce or whether it's through... Uh, uh, death or whatever, this woman's lost all these men as husbands and she's got nothing. And her, she's either going to be a prostitute or go back in shame to her family or just be destitute. And so she's dependent on this, this final guy to protect her. And so Jesus really works through where she is and leads her to this point of saying, you know, the real solution is God, and that resonates with her, and so she wants to know what's the right thing to do about God. 
Well, this story, if you listen, it has so many types of the story of Rahab. You know, and and there's a time where we we kind of salaciously used to say Rahab the harlot. Right. Yeah. And uh, and uh, it was it, it just kind of was. Uh, but when you start reading that story, there are two concerns that Rahab has throughout that story, in addition to protecting the spies, that, that come out. She is desperate, desperate to protect her family. And I think she did what she did because that was her way of providing for her family. Now, I will tell you, I, I, I went on a Compassion International trip for internet, big you know, big internet presence, folks. About well, it was in 2010, and I was on there with a guy that's a Grammy Award-winning songwriter. Used to lead worship at, at uh, Sandals Church. I don't know if y'all are familiar with Sandals out here, and uh, and they had a ministry on Friday and Saturday nights, and uh, uh, they would go. Most of them were women, but there were a few men that went. He was one of them men that went and they would go to strip clubs and at two o'clock in the morning would provide sandwich and a warm drink and accompany the women's strippers to their cars so they were protected and this guy met his wife there and she was not she was not one doing ministry but she worked a full-time job. I think she was actually a school teacher. But her parents were both very, very ill. And she, she didn't have enough money to take care of them. And she could make a ton of money doing that a couple times a week to go with her teaching money. She lived with them. And she's trying to protect her family. And, uh, you know, they fell in love. She... she, she is not proud of what she did, but she's proud of what God did through the ministry that was going on there. Well, I think Rahab is one of those people. If you listen carefully to the story, she talks about, for the Lord your God is the God in heaven above and the one on earth below. And she, she remembers the stories, even though they were 38, 39 years old, about how God delivered the Israelites from Egypt. And she wants that God, and she wants her family to have a new start. And so she says, now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I've shown kindness to you. Well, this, this word is tied to one of the words that describe the nature of God, God's loving kindness, his faithful love and kindness. And so uh, Rahab ends up saving the Jewish spies, but also she saved. Now, there, here's a little thing that we've just discovered in the last 10 years. There's a lower section of the wall in Jericho that they have unearthed that has a room that's near the base of the wall, near where the gate would have been. Uh, and it's the only preserved dwelling in the wall. Mm-hmm. It's a really cool thing when you know the story. And, of course, you know, we talk about the red light district and the scar- scarlet cord. Well, it was, she didn't just hang the scarlet cord out for them. That was right. to let folks know what her business was. So it's a, it's a powerful story of God's deliverance. And Rahab is brought into the family tree of King David and Jesus. And what's even cooler is she becomes the mother-in-law of our next little hero. So... Uh, this is another one of my favorite stories because of the tender language that Luke uses. The widow at Nain, and he and his disciples come up, and there's a funeral procession, and they're carrying this young man to bury, to bury him. And if you're in ministry long enough, you guys have probably had to do something like this. You've had a, an adult child of somebody in your congregation or somebody you love and it is devastating for a parent to lose an adult child. It's, it's devastating to lose a child that's a child, but 
if for some reason, the closer you get to death, the more it seems ghastly and so out of phase that you should have to bear a child. Well, she's a, she's a widow. She's by herself. She has no protection. And her son is dead. Jesus walks up to the funeral bier, the thing that they were carrying the man on, and he raises that guy back to life. But what's cool is the language that Luke uses. He says, Jesus gave him back to his mother. Sweet, sweet, tender language. And it just, you know, it's that theme of God loving the widow, caring for the poor. Uh, and, and this is just one of those moments. So, to me, this New Testament story has a thematic origin in the story of Ruth, which is one of the coolest, sweetest love stories ever. And, uh, and in many ways, the, the role that this book plays in the, the, the scriptures, the Old Testament, the scriptures, is Ruth is, is the God figure in this story. In fact, the language used to describe Ruth is the language used to describe Yahweh. Cool. His faithful love. So, here's Ruth. God loves the forgotten and marginalized, widows, orphans, foreigners, uh, through his people who live with character and compassion and share his blessing. So, you know the story. Uh, Naomi, her husband, and two sons have to leave because of a famine. They go to Moab, which is in many ways a hated enemy of Israel. And while there, the two sons married Moabite women. And then, in a tragic set of events, neither the, daughter, neither the sons have children with their wives, and they die, and their dad dies, and Naomi is left alone. In fact, it's so heartbreaking, she said, don't call me Naomi anymore, call me Mara, which means bitter. I'm, a, right. I'm just a bitter old woman. Right. And... and but she loves her daughter-in-laws, and they say, we'll go back with you, and she sends them back. But Ruth does that famous, don't ask me to leave you right. or to turn back from following you. Where, right. Wherever you go, I'm going to go. Wherever you stay, I'm going to stay. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. We, this is, she's making a covenant, and then she concludes it with a covenant curse, and, and, and she, she says, she says, I'll be cursed if I don't keep this, this covenant with you. So she goes back and, you know, uh, uh, the people see Naomi and they welcome her back and all that. But there's a problem. You got two widows. And they've got some property. But they don't have any means to do anything with it. And nobody wants to take care of two widows. How are you going to do that? And there's no Social Security. You're not going to get on government help. And so they're home, but they're, they have no real home. So uh, Naomi explains to Ruth how things work. And so Ruth goes out, and she begins to take advantage of this law. If whatever falls on the ground, you have to leave behind for the poor, the widow, and the foreigner. Well, Ruth's a widow and a foreigner trying to take care of her Jewish mom and you can't harvest the corners. But here's the little twist. Ruth's a looker. Okay? I, I mean, that's the text pretty much says that. Boaz looks out and goes, who's that? And I say, well, this is, this is Ruth, the daughter of Naomi. And he goes, oh, wow. And basically, what you can see, since we're all men in here today, to put it in male languages, not only is she good-looking, she is incredibly faithful. Because I've heard all about how she is with her mother-in-law. So he says, okay, guys, not only let her harvest the, ground, the stuff that falls on the ground and in, in the corners, but you tell her to come up real close so that she's not with the riffraff where she could get hurt. And on top of that, throw some more extra out so she has more to take home. And so she does. 
And so Ruth does this, and she has a whole lot of stuff she takes back that uh, that's roasted as grain for food. And then uh, Naomi goes, well, now, where did that come from? And she starts talking about this guy, and she goes, oh, my goodness. He's part of the family that could be your kinsman redeemer. So this is what she did, what you do. And so she goes in after the harvest, and he's happy and jolly, and he's had a little bit of wine. He goes to sleep. She goes and crawls in under the, the bottom of his covering. In other words, she's getting in the bottom part of his sleeping bag saying, hey, dude, I'm available. You've been really good to me. So uh, he realizes she's interested. He's interested. So then he has to go figure out where he is on the kinsman redeemer pecking order, and he's number two. So he goes to the guy that's number one, and he doesn't want to do it because he has to take care of him and share his inheritance and all that. And he said, I'm going to take care of this. And he goes, and uh, it's cool because you hear about how you, you give something in pledge. Instead of making a down payment, he leaves his shoe so that everybody knows he can come, come back and claim it. And, and God takes care of this incredible woman who's faithful to her Jewish mother-in-law, this, this Midianite woman practices faithful love and is full of righteous character and gracious compassion. She is a reflection of who God is, and so she's brought into the family of God, and she becomes Boaz's wife. Now, do you know who her mother-in-law is? Her mother-in-law is Rahab. Oh, yeah. Isn't that a cool story? <laughs> this woman that had been a prostitute that wanted to take care of her family is brought into the Jewish family of God, has a son, and he could be a son or a grandson because they skip a few generations in there, but the main principle is God has, is redeeming his people and he's doing it when they're faithful to keep his law about taking care of the poor, the widow, and the orphan. So I think it's so connected to some of these other stories. Okay, we've got seven minutes, so we're going to try to finish this up. Uh, uh, in Mark 6, Jesus goes home, and he starts doing some things. And uh, they hear his teaching, they go, man, this is, this is good. And then they go, wait a minute, we know this dude. He grew up here, he's no big deal. He's just a carpenter. We know his brother James and Joseph and Judas, and we know his sisters. And so uh, Mark makes very clear he could he could not do any great thing there except heal a few people. Now most of us have settled for that, right? If Jesus showed up and he just healed a few people, but he couldn't do any great stuff. But James is a part of this. But this phrase right here isn't this Mary's son. Mm -hmm. You know what that's saying? Mm -hmm. What's it saying? Well, we don't know about his dad. dad. Yeah. But they knew Joseph. Right? They knew right. Joseph. So we don't know who his dad is. Hey, Phil. Yeah. Also in John 8, he says uh, that the, the, the leader said to him, We weren't born of fornication. Yeah. Almost implying. Yes. That you were. Yeah. Now, there are those hints all throughout the gospel that, that they're calling, uh, our term today would be a bastard child. Or, 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 they do the same with the blind man in John 9. Mm -hmm. You who were uh, born in steep, sin. Steeped in sin. Steeped in sin. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so all of that, all that's implicit here. Well, think about it if you're one of the brothers of Jesus. And then we know from John 7 that they didn't believe right. in him until after the resurrection. In fact, one of the people that Jesus pierced to is James. So even though James becomes this incredible leader, uh, he, he comes out of the middle of a family mess, and anybody that didn't believe Jesus was the Messiah after his resurrection that was from his hometown still thought he was a slime ball. And James carried that same burden. Well, when we go to the story of kings, when Israel moves into kings, Saul reigns and he's handsome and he's all this and God blesses him and God's spirit comes on him. Uh, 
but then he is unrepentant uh, uh, through several major sin episodes, and God removes his, his spirit from Solomon, gives his, I mean, from uh, Saul, and gives it to David. And David is a, is a good man, and he's seeking for God, but he is a flawed man, and his family is a mess. Well, in, in almost every culture we know about, when a, when a king dies, it's his oldest son that becomes the next ruler. But God overthrows this principle. The principle is called primogeniture, the prime, primary right of the firstborn, primogeniture. And Solomon is like son number six or seven, depending mm -hmm. on who you listen to. And his mom is Bathsheba, right. the lady with whom David committed adultery. Uh, and... Uh, She's most likely, she's a Hittite, so she's not a Jew either. So Solomon comes into this world with all these things, but then becomes king. And for a long time, he's a good king and a wise king and has this incredible reputation. Right. And when he quit being humble and began to take all these wives to make treaties, something God forbid, uh, then, then he began to, to fall apart. But what we learn from this story is it doesn't matter our family messes. God can redeem those family messes. Uh, God wants to, to, to use people that seek him that are wise and choose to live uh, righteous lives. And so what the Bible presents, if you look at the whole wisdom literature and all that, and you understand Ecclesiastes and some dialogue with Proverbs and Job and all that, well, you get to the end of Ecclesiastes, and Ecclesiastes says, okay, we're done with wisdom literature. This is it. And, you know, Proverbs gives you these, these principles, and they work almost universally, but not always. Right. And then here's Job, and Job's an example of what happens when bad things happen to good people and it doesn't mean he's a bad person and all that. Well, and then you have Ecclesiastes that has all this stuff that's a brain buster. You know, it's just, uh, yeah, this is true, but oh yeah, this is true, and this is true, but then sometimes it's not true. And finally he gets to the end and he says, we're done. We're done writing, you know, we're done writing wisdom literature. But here's the bottom line. Fear God and keep his commands. This is the whole of humankind, this is the this is the essence of what it means to be human is to to humble ourselves before God. So we have this. And James is is in many quarters considered the Solomon of the New Testament, his book of James. Uh, but God steps in the middle of that. Okay, we're almost completely out of time. The Samaritan story, the story of the Good Samaritan, is uh, is a powerful rebuke of self-righteousness shows grace and the hero of the story is a Samaritan somebody Jews would have hated. Well, we have a hero that is a jerk. <laughs> and his name is Jonah. And he's a jerk. Uh, and, and yet, the story tells of God's love for these foreign people in this foreign city that were the hated enemy. It's like Sending a prophet when ISIS was at its worst, beheading people in Syria that were Christians, and sending a prophet to them, knowing that that prophet was going to bring them to repentance. Well, Jonah was that prophet, and he goes to Nineveh. And they were a despicable people, and they were a violent people, and they were an oppressive people. But he doesn't want to go. And the reason he doesn't want to go is not because he's afraid or at least not afraid of them, he's afraid of God. That if these people repent, right. God will forgive them. Uh, he will, he will uh, do good things. And so in his little pouty uh, party that he had at the end of the book, uh, he goes, I know that you're a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anchor and abounding in love, and a God who, who relents from sending calamity. Now that sounds like a good thing. But he's mad because he said, I don't want to preach here because I know if I preach to them and they repent, this is the kind of God you are and you'd forgive them.
Uh, but he becomes kind of this anti-hero hero that God uses uh, to remind us. And what's amazing is, just like in the story of the prodigal son, God keeps trying to redeem Jonah. So it's not just the people of Nineveh, but so God cares for all sinners, religious and non-religious. God works in our lives to turn him in his ways, and God is patient. All right, somebody could say something? All right, well, guess what? We're done. The end of this slide section has some ideas about, if you teach these stories, how do we incorporate it into our lives? And uh, the, the, the big principle is, how do we help people do more than get a data dump in their brain of information? These are real people with real stories, and so are we, so what is our story? How do we learn to tell our story? And what stories can we connect it to? We're not going to do any of that because we're out of time. I want to thank you for coming. I want to uh-huh. thank you for participating. But most of all, I want you, when you hear New Testament stories, to ask God to lead you to some Old Testament ones, Old Testament ones, our scriptures, the Old Testament, that tell that same theme and help people understand this has always been the heart of God. We live in a nasty political climate, and I am devotedly non-political. <laughs> but one thing I know, and we talked about some things, some things are confusing and mysterious. One thing I know is if I claim to be a follower of God, I'm going to love the widow, the fatherless, and the foreigner that's among us. And I'm going to do what I can to introduce them to the God of faithful love. God bless you guys, and thanks for being here.